think through that. This morning we're into Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, we've made our way through Philippi and uh, continuing on the journey with, with Paul and company. And we'll see where he, he goes. You know, as we um, think about the world, about history, what takes place, how we are, are in the world, where, what things have happened, there are probably a lot of people that say, can you think of some people who have changed the world in one form or another? And as you sit and think about it, there's probably a big list of, of, of people in various areas. You know, Picasso or Da Vinci who changed the way art was done, how we considered art, or Einstein or Mary Curie in the sciences, uh, Elon Musk even more, perhaps uh, contemporary, thinking the way we, we think, the list could go on and on. You think, well, these people have made such a significant influence in, in life that it's changed the way not just a particular group lives, but the way the world lives or the way things, things function. And usually when we think about changing the world, it's those sorts of people we think about, people that have had a massive influence in the world, that have changed things on large-scale ways that have significant influence. Last week, as we went through the, the end of, of Luke 16, we saw how the gospel has a personal change in lives. And we looked at the three people that are mentioned there in, in Philippi, beginning with, with Lydia, this uh, God-fearing woman, and, and how through her prayers, God answered those prayers and saw her find salvation. And then that led us straight on to the, the slave girl who was freed from the dominion of Satan, and then right into the, uh, the area of the, the jailer, who then was saved from his, well, secular and, and rough way of life. And we saw the personal impact the gospel can have. This week we see it on a little bit bigger scale. The influence the gospel can have in a bigger way. But while we look at it and see it in a bigger scale, we also see it in a smaller way here. The big impact, the vast influence the gospel has, but also in its small way. So let's read together in Acts 17. We're just going to read the first 15 verses and see as Paul passes through two towns, Thessalonica and Berea. So it says in verse 1 of Acts 17, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and, gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. 
And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas, and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we learn from your word, we pray that it would encourage us in our service for you, as we pursue you to be witnesses where you have placed us. Thank you in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. This passage of scripture is is burnt, imprinted in my mind. When I was 12 and 13, we were traveling around America and and uh, my father was preaching in churches all over. This was his sermon from Acts 17. Uh, and for a while, uh, I could sit there and I could mouth the sermon along with him. I'd heard it that many times. But it is a great passage of Scripture. because It teaches us so much and we see so many things about the work of the gospel through us. You know, when we talk about, you know, it says here that they turn the world upside down. And when we talk about changing the world so like we say we often think about the, the great influence you know when we're young we're we're filled with a sense of boundless enthusiasm and invincibility you know and and that's good that's a god-ordained thing god made us that way and we're we're often told that you know the next generation will be the generation that changes the world and and many of us charge the world as if we can and change the world but over time, most of us end up realizing that for most of us, we're not going to be the ones that change the world in huge ways. Even those individuals, you know, like we've mentioned before, like come to mind, even they don't change the world on their own. They have others that involved that, that work with them or build on what they've done. But even though we may not be the ones who have this vast influence, who make great changes in the world which change everything, it doesn't mean that we can't change the world. But we're more likely to do it on a smaller scale, in a far more personal way. That change will, will come, but it will come more slowly. The world needs people like the Apostle Paul. It needs William Tyndale, and it needs Martin Luther, and it needs uh, Whitfield, and it needs Billy Graham. It needs those ones who can go out and make big changes and have vast influence. But more than that, more than those, we need people who are just ordinary, faithful ministers of Christ. And that's what I want to consider to this morning as we look through these verses of Scripture and see Paul travel through Thessalonica and Berea. And my first thought here is this, where we talk about changing the world, but my first thought to us is this, you can't reach the world. You can't reach the world. In verses uh, 1 and 2, it tells us now, when they had passed through Amphipolis, 
and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. You can't reach everyone. It is impossible. It may not even be your place to reach a certain people or a certain group. Paul and his company with Silas and Timothy and perhaps some others leave Philippi and they are encouraged by the power of the gospel they have seen in Philippi. But as they leave Philippi, they pass through two cities. They pass through Amphipolis and they pass through Apollonia. They, they don't stop there. Now, both of these cities are larger cities than Philippi. So they've just spent all this time in Philippi witnessing and serving and, and seeing people get saved. They then go to two larger cities with more influence in the area than Philippi and they pass through both of them. They don't stop. It would seem like these would be good places to go. Large cities with vast influence in the area, but they don't stop. Paul is headed to Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica is the capital of the region of Macedonia and that, that region, and that's where he is headed to go. We often look at, at the world and you see needs surround us everywhere. There are people that have physical needs and the need for the gospel all over, and we're often moved by those needs of what is around us, but we just can't reach every place. Uh, some statistics and, and people that look at these things estimate that 42% of the world, of the, the people groups of the world, is still unreached with the gospel. 42% of the world, the people groups in the world, is still unreached with the gospel. In Australia, they estimate that there is about 15% of people groups here in Australia that is still unreached with the gospel. Need surrounds us everywhere. The gospel needs to be uh, further into the world. And sometimes, though we may be burdened for people, we just can't reach them. I suspect as Paul passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, he could see the need. He knew these people needed the gospel, but he passed through them. He couldn't reach everyone. God called Paul and, and his company to Macedonia, but not to every city in Macedonia. The need may be great, but you may not be able to be the one to meet that need. While it may not be your place, you can pray for others in that place. This is what do you do about that? When there are needs you see all around, you think that 15% you know, of our own nation has never heard the gospel. 42% of the world has never heard the gospel. How do, we, how do we deal with that? We pray. Jesus called us in Luke chapter 10, Verse 22, as he looks at it, he says, Then he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. There's, there's need everywhere. There's, there's people who need to know the gospel. There's people who are ready for the gospel. But there's not enough people. We just can't get to everyone right now. So what do we do? He says, Therefore, pray. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Paul was praying for these cities to be reached. He was praying for other cities to be reached. To, to the city where he's going, to Thessalonica, he writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10, Finally, brethren, pray for us, 
that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified, just as it is with you. What's he saying? He says to this, the church that grew up here in Thessalonica, he says, pray for us that from us the gospel would just run, just like it's running from you, that it would reach places that we cannot reach. You may not be able to go or the right person for that area, but you can pray for the people that will go. You can pray for the ones that will reach there. To be an evangelist or, or to be a missionary isn't just about going, but it's also about praying. We're a team. Now, you can't reach everyone, but you can reach some. You can't reach everyone, but you can reach some because you have places of influence. You can't influence everywhere, but you can influence somewhere. Paul, as he passes through these two cities and he's heading to Thessalonica, he's thinking strategically. He's thinking, how can I best use the time and the gifts that I have to do what God needs me to do? And as he considers that, as he prays and he follows the Spirit, he sees Thessalonica is where to go. He knows he can have good influence in Thessalonica. It's a capital city. So it's a strategic place to reach further into the area. Unlike Philippi, where he just was, it's a place where there is enough Jews for a synagogue. So he's able to go into the synagogue so he can start ministering there in a familiar way, where he has an open door. So because he is a, a Pharisee and he has that behind him, it opens doors for him in the synagogues, which means there is an open way for him to start. So it gives him that opportunity. Begin by reaching people with a concept of God already and moving on. So it makes sense to start here. It makes sense for Paul to come to Thessalonica. And just as Paul looks strategically at where he's at and what he can do, we need to look strategically at our lives too. Where do you have open doors? Where do you have influence? Where do you have opportunity? to use the gifts and to speak for Christ in the life that you have. Start there. Start in the places where doors are open, where opportunities already exist, where you can use what you have. You have relationships, you have associations, you have opportunities in life. Now, I'm not talking about using or abusing those relationships as a way to further your own ideas, your own agendas, but rather looking where you're at and saying, here I have people and opportunities right next to me where there is great need and I can meet that need where I am at. You can reach some because you have places of influence and in your places of influence, you can enable others in their influence. The fruit of this work is seen. So as Paul makes his way from Philippi and he comes around the Aegean Sea and passes through Amphipolis and Apollonia and comes down here to Thessalonica and he spends time there, as time goes by, we see the fruit of that decision. The beginning of his first letter to the Thessalonians, he says, For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. 
Paul couldn't do everything, but he did what he could. And the result was a church in Thessalonica is born. And from that church in Thessalonica, the gospel goes out to every city he could not reach. From Thessalonica, the gospel reaches Amphipolis and Apollonia and all these towns and all these cities around that whole area and beyond. Places that Paul could not do on his own. The Thessalonians become missionaries. They become reproducing Christians. God is at work multiplying. Paul goes to where he knows he can minister, where he has opportunity, where he has service, and he uses his talents there, which then spread far beyond what he could possibly do on his own. Your place, your sphere of influences, your opportunities and open doors, they may seem small. And the progress of ministry in those areas may seem slow, but your ministry makes a difference. Your speaking for God makes a difference. Your ministry enables other people to minister, to pass that on to others. We might look at the stats, like I mentioned before, where some suggest that around about 40% of the world is unreached. But if each of us does our small part, instead of those stats becoming overwhelming, we see them as becoming achievable. If I do my part, that gets passed on to somebody else who does their part, who does their part, who does their part. And slowly, the world is reached for Jesus Christ. We see here at the beginning, one, that you can't reach the world. You can't do everything, but you can do something. Secondly, the truth is this. The gospel does turn the world upside down. The gospel does turn the world upside down. As Paul comes in and he begins to share with the people that he's there, he preaches to them firstly that Jesus is king, that Jesus is the suffering savior. It says in verse 3, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And saying this, Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. Jesus is the suffering saviour. The gospel, when we talk about turning the world upside down, about making a difference, about changing this world, the gospel is a radical message. It takes time to grasp. So we're told here that Paul has spent three Sabbath days. So he's there three weeks. Each Sabbath day he's in the tabernacle, in the, the temple, the synagogue, I should say, speaking and explaining and, and teaching. You know, the gospel is a message which genuinely turns everything upside down. And he takes his time to explain it and to teach it and walk people through it. We've noted before when we've talked about the gospel that you don't need to give the whole gospel all at once. It's a lot to take in. So we give it in little pieces and we explain what needs to be explained. And we, we, we share the parts of the gospel that, that we can at any one moment and build on that. And this is what Paul is doing. He's building understanding. Paul takes the time to guide them through the truth. He begins with a counterintuitive truth. That the Savior must suffer. That he must suffer first. What is this suffering Messiah all about? What does it mean? Why start there? 
Because the suffering of Christ, the suffering of Messiah goes straight to the heart of the nature of humanity. Why did he suffer? What, what, why would God suffer? He suffers because he loves us. He suffers because we are sinful. And so the Savior, the Christ, the King, suffers because of his love. He suffers because of our state, our place, our nature. So the gospel turns everything upside down. Because to look at Jesus demands that we look honestly at ourselves, that we see who we truly are. Sin is what causes all the suffering. Sin is what causes death. His suffering doesn't make him savior, though. So he doesn't end with that. He builds on that. He begins saying that he must suffer. He is savior because he overcame sin because he overcame the suffering and death and was raised from the dead. This, then, is that Jesus is the sovereign ruler. This suffering, risen Savior is king. So while he says there in verse, verse 3, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ, and there's a bit of a mix there. There are Jews there and there are some Greeks there who have an understanding. But mixed up into the idea of the Messiah, of the Christ with the Jews, is the very idea of king. So while they may not fully understand the idea of Messiah, and maybe they're beginning to have things studied and, and, and followed along Judaism, in, in their very mind, when he says Christ, and he starts talking about Messiah, they are thinking king. Even in verse 7, when the people are bringing accusations against him. It says, Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, there is another king. So they all understood what, what Paul was saying when he says that, that this Jesus, this Savior, had to suffer and die and then resurrected, and he is the Christ. They understood in their, in, in their uh, little way here what Paul was saying is that there is a king, a ruler of all. Paul is showing the suffering savior is king of all. He rules over all gods, over all the gods that were worshipped there in the area. He rules over all people. He rules over everything. Having suffered and risen, he has proven to be the king of all kings and the lord of all lords. And so he is the one that we should submit to. He is the one that we will submit to in the end, whether we like it or not. What Paul preaches, that Jesus is king, says is that the gospel changes everything. It changes how we see ourselves. The gospel turns our world upside down. Now, Jason is right when he says these that have turned the world upside down. It's interesting, though, isn't it, that he's accusing them of turning the world upside down, but it's them that start the riot. But to them, that's exactly what it is. It, even though it doesn't mean that, that everything is turned upside down, the message of the gospel does indeed turn everything upside down. The gospel changes how we see ourselves. It demands that we see that we are sinful. It demands that we see that we are deserving of death. 
naturally, we all see ourselves as good. We see ourselves deserving of God's blessing. We assume that God owes us something. The difference between Jesus and the Greek gods was the Greek gods were basically a reflection of human nature. They were basically a, a reflection of society. We reflected onto them what we thought God should be like, the, the best and the worst of human society, and they played out what society and what human nature was really like. They were gods of our own creation. Now, we may not worship Zeus and Apollo and, and Diana, but today we're still worshipping a god of our own creation. The world and our society around us, they believe in gods, but the gods they want to believe in. We make Jesus to be the Jesus we want. We make deities to be a reflection of what we desire. But Jesus doesn't allow for that. Jesus doesn't allow for us to make him or anything into what we want. He is not like us. He is entirely different from us. And it is for that very reason that he is able to save. No other God can save. They were too much like us, at least in our imaginations. But Jesus, the real God, is nothing like us, which is why he can save us. The gospel changes how we see ourselves. The gospel changes how we see our world. Again, Jason says, that, turn the world upside down. That is, it's challenging our worldview to see Jesus as Savior, the suffering Savior and the risen King means we have to flip everything on its head. If he is King, it means I have to submit. If I have to submit, it means I need to see the world and life differently. Naturally, our worldview centers around us, what we want, what we desire. Predominantly, it revolves around our pleasure. And that's why, in this world, suffering doesn't make sense to people. People wonder, why, why do bad things happen? Why do we suffer? Where does suffering come from? We, we confuse by suffering because our natural worldview is that we deserve pleasure, so suffering makes no sense. The gospel flips all of that on its head. And that's why these people are in an uproar. Think how different the Christian worldview is to the worldview of our society. In your own life, even, the change that the gospel makes to your own worldview here. The changes that come to the way we live. The changes that come to the way we think about life and society and good and bad. Christianity is a radical change of life in every way. That's why too many... Uh, too many think that, that as Christians live out their Christianity, that it's judgmental. Because we're living a worldview which is the complete opposite. And so it looks like that because we're living something which is entirely upside down from what they're used to, from what they understand. You can turn the world upside down 
simply by living your faith. Thirdly, you can be a faithful witness of the gospel. So while we can't do everything, we can do something. And the gospel that we have can change the world. So preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. Speak about the Bible. It says, as Paul enters these places, in in verse 2, it says, Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three days he reasoned with them. In verse 3 it says, Explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again. So Paul goes in and he reasons and he explains and he demonstrates what he's talking about and what the Bible says. You know, most people in our society think they know what Christianity is. And they think they know what the Bible says. They really have no idea at all. They just go on what, they, what they've heard or what somebody else has told them or what they suspect or maybe the bits and pieces they picked up as a kid in Sunday school or from around or they've picked a little bit here or there from the bit of the Bible they've read. They think they know about God, about Christianity but actually they have very little understanding. So we need to explain. We need to reveal. We need to teach it. The word in verse 2, reasoned, means to dialogue, to reason, to dialogue, to talk, to back and forth with others. We need to be prepared to interact with people to confront the worldview, to talk about their worldview, to talk about how Christ fits into the worldview, to talk about what the gospel really is, means we need to be prepared to answer questions. We need to be prepared to be challenged by things which perhaps we haven't thought of or haven't heard, but to, to take that on and to listen. We need to be prepared to give answers. Peter says in 1 Peter 3, he says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. There's an old saying that goes around, maybe you've heard it or not. It says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That's really bad evangelism. Just because you believe it doesn't mean other people are going to automatically believe it because you tell them that's what God says, what the Bible says. We need to explain. We need to take the questions, answer the questions, ponder over what people are thinking, and show them, explain them, reveal to them what the gospel really is. Don't argue. Don't turn everything into an argument. I've seen too much of that. People stand and argue with people over what is or what isn't right. But, but reason, talk, explain and teach what the gospel is. Show them that their understanding of Christianity, their understanding of God, of the gospel is deficient and what it means. Now, if we're going to do that, if we're going to speak about the Bible, it means that we need to study the Bible to be students of God's word. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 
Verse 16 continues on and it talks about uh, saying, don't waste your time listening to false teachers and empty chatter about conspiracy theories and, and ideas. So don't chase the, the fables and the, the theories and the ideas around. Don't, don't waste your time on those. Rather, study to rightly divide, to rightly understand, to rightly apply the word of God. So we get into God's word, and as we get into God's word, we, there, we, we need to learn it, we need to let it change us, we need to understand it, but we also need to study it with the intent that we find its answers, that we find how to, how to take what is here and apply it into the lives of the people around us. How is what I'm reading today, how is what I'm studying and what I'm learning from God's word today, how does that apply? How does it fit into the life and the worldview of the people around me? How is it going to change that? How can I help people understand what God says? That can only come by studying and doing the hard work of learning God's word. Learn how to relate it to people and places that you have influence Learn how to use God's word rightly, effectively, and powerfully. And in the end, persevere. Persevere. Because there will be mixed response. In these two cities, we see uh, an array of responses. In Thessalonica, there are many that believe. There are some who are the, the, the high and influential people in the city that believe, and low, there's, there's Greeks and there's Jews, but predominantly the Jews are very antagonistic. So there's a mixed response to the gospel. Then when they come to Berea, in Berea there is a very different response there. The, the people are willing to examine, they're willing to listen. So when Paul speaks to them, they say, all right, well, let's take that on. Let's, let's read through that. Let's see if he's telling us the truth. Let's consider his perspective, what he has to say. As we share the gospel, people are going to respond to us differently. Some will listen. Some will be quickly receptive of what we have to say of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. And in the end, believe Others will reject what we have to say and they will become perhaps hostile. Here we see not only do they become hostile in their own city, but they follow them and cause trouble later. Then others that we speak to may not be quick to believe and they may not be hostile, but it's going to take them time. Like the Bereans, they're going to think through it. They're going to consider the truth that we are sharing with them. They're going to have questions. They're going to want to find the, the reason behind it. They're going to want to investigate and think. And it's going to take time. God has never promised universal salvation. He does promise to save some by strengthening his people to witness. So keep spreading the gospel. Verse 15 says, so those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. The troublesome Jews just keep following them, just keep making trouble along the way. Now, whether the gospel goes out with power, it's also followed by opposition. The door may have closed for Paul, in these cities but that didn't mean that the end of the gospel witness went with him 
they moved on to a different place of influence. But the people in Thessalonica continued to work for God. The people in Berea continued to work for God. So don't ever give up in the face of opposition. Move on and let God keep working. We look at people like Paul as world changers, people that will quite literally turn the world upside down. But Paul didn't do it alone. The world wasn't turned upside down with the gospel because of Paul alone. The world was reached with the gospel because of faithful ministers in every place. As Paul did what God called him to do, the people at Thessalonica and Berea did what God called them to do. And it passed on, and it passed on, and it passed on. The people who reached their families, their neighbors, and their cities, their region for Christ. At times it seems like the gospel races across places. See, see, as if the, the gospel just seems to be like a fire that rushes through nations or areas. And then at other times, it's just done slowly, personally, faithfully. So at the beginning, I, I listened to my father preach from this passage over and over again. And one of the things I remember was a poem he read. And I think it's, uh, it's worth reading. Particularly the last part. The first part is, is relevant, but the last part of it is the most relevant for this morning. So I'll read that as we, we end this morning. It's called Ten Little Christians. Ten little Christians standing in a line. One disliked the pastor, then there were nine. Nine little Christians stayed up very late. One slept in on Sunday, then there were eight. Eight little Christians on their way to heaven. One took the low road, then there were seven. Seven little Christians chirping like chicks. One disliked the music, then there were six. Six little Christians seemed very much alive, but one lost his interest, then there were five. Five little Christians pulling for heaven's shore, but one stopped to rest, then there were four. Four little Christians, each busy as a bee. One got her feelings hurt, then there were three. Three little Christians knew what to do. One joined the sports crowd, then there were two. Two little Christians, our rhyme is nearly done, differed with each other, then there was one. One little Christian can't do much, tis true. Brought his friend to Bible study. Then there were two. Two earnest Christians, each one, one, one more. That doubled their number. Then there were four. Four sincere Christians worked early and late. Each one, one another. Then there were eight. Eight little Christians, if they doubled as before in just a few short weeks, we'd have 1,024. In this little jingle, there's a lesson true. You belong to the building or the wrecking crew. This, we just need to do our little bit. As I pass on to one, they pass on to another. And before long, the gospel is slowly but effectively progressing. We can turn the world upside down one person at a time. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its encouragement. We thank you for the examples we see in Paul. And dear God, we are thankful for the people that you have brought into this world, like, like Paul, who have had significant and massive influence in this world beyond what we could possibly imagine. 
Maybe yet, dear God, in this room, there is someone who will have an impact like that. But nevertheless, Lord, we understand that if each one does our part, if each one faithfully pursues to live for you, we can make a genuine difference in the lives of the people around us. The world can be turned upside down for that person and for the people that they will reach. We thank you for the power of the gospel. We thank you for the opportunity to be able to share that with others. In Jesus' name. Amen.